0: Hey, Dan here. Before we start the show, I want to tell you about a live recording of this podcast that we're doing in New York City on March 28th. I will be interviewing two frequent flyers from this show the legendary meditation teacher, Joseph Goldstein, who will be just coming off a three month solo silent meditation retreat, and Dr. Mark Epstein, a Buddhist therapist and best selling author. The event will actually be a celebration of the 10th anniversary of my first book, 10% Happier, and a percentage of the proceeds will go to the New York Insight Meditation Center. Come early if you want for a VIP guided meditation and Q&A with me. Thanks to our friends over at Audible for sponsoring this show and the event. Tickets on sale right now at symphonyspace.org.
1: How do we want to do this, guys? Should we, Dan, do you want us to welcome you? Is that...
0: <laughs> That's a good idea, yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah,
0: okay. Should we just dive in?
2: Yeah, let's dive in.
0: Okay. Let's do it. It's gonna be weird. I would just say as an overarching thing, we should enjoy this.
2: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay.
0: This is the Ten Percent Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hello, everybody. How we doing? This show would not exist. In fact, my whole career as a meditation evangelist or whatever you want to call it, none of it would exist if I had not taken a huge risk 10 years ago and put out a book called 10% Happier, after which this show is, of course, named. It really was a huge risk. At the time, as many of you know, I was a network news anchor, co-host of Nightline, also the co-host of the weekend editions of Good Morning America. I also spent a lot of time traveling around the world doing uh, investigative stories and covering breaking news. So to be in this position and to publicly admit that I had struggled with depression and then self-medicated with cocaine and that it all resulted in a panic attack on Good Morning America, well, as you can imagine, uh, that was something of an out-of-the-box career move. And bear in mind, this was well before the current era where lots of people uh, talk about their mental health challenges openly. While I was terrified uh, that the book might torpedo my career, uh, I did not actually think, uh, even if I survived, that the book would amount to much. However, to my surprise, uh, the book became pretty successful. It produced this podcast and it allowed me to do something I never would have imagined, quit the news business and uh, work in the world of mental health and happiness full time. Anyway, the book is turning 10 years old this month. I just put out a revised 10th anniversary edition of the book with a new preface and expanded appendix filled with meditation instructions. And to celebrate this milestone, we're kicking off a big series in which I'm going to go back and interview many of the major players from the book. So you're going to hear me talk to people like Deepak Chopra, who's never been on this show before, Uh, also Joseph Goldstein, Dr. Mark Epstein, and even my younger brother, who, if you read the book, uh, played the role of snarky skeptic, was even more skeptical than I was about meditation and has, however, to my delight, recently become a convert. We are kicking this series off today with an unusual episode where two of my producers, DJ Kashmir and Lauren Smith, interview me. We talk about the story behind the book, what it was like to have a panic attack on national television, why I decided to admit it publicly, how the success of the book utterly transformed my life, and what I learned during all of this, both while writing the book and subsequently. We talk about concepts such as respond, not react, why our faults are not our fault, but they are our responsibility, and whether every one of us has the capacity to change. DJ and Lauren will even weigh in on how they think uh, I'm doing on the uh, change front these days. That is coming up. First, though, some BSP, blatant self-promotion. Don't forget, I'm doing a live podcast taping in new york city on march 28th i'll be talking to joseph goldstein the great meditation teacher who will have just wrapped up his annual three-month solo silent meditation retreat so we'll talk to him about what he learned i'll also be talking to dr mark epstein a buddhist therapist who's been on this show many times and has been a great friend to me and a mentor for many many years uh, there will be a band there mates of state and you'll have one of your first opportunities to uh buy 10% Happier merch, which we just started making. Oh, and finally, if you come early and pay a little extra, you can get a uh, VIP ticket where you can get a guided meditation from me and a Q&A. Tickets on sale right now at symphonyspace.org. We're doing this event, by the way, as uh, a celebration of the 10th anniversary of a book I wrote called 10% Happier. Shortly after I wrote the book, I not only started this podcast, but I co-founded the 10% Happier app. And in celebration of the 10th anniversary... Uh, until the end of the month, you can get the app for 40% off. Get this deal before it ends by going to 10 com slash 40 and dive into guided meditations and insightful courses designed for you. That's 10%, one word, all spelled out, .com slash 40 for 40% off your subscription. thrilling and uh, very, very plotty, but it's also written incredibly well. It's truly literature. Deepti Kapoor is a a force of nature as a writer. Age of Vice, it takes you into the uh, underworld in New Delhi in India. I absolutely love that one. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers, whole wheat, pita pockets, and more. I am constantly consuming these 365 products, including the the raw cashews, which I snack on all the time. We love the 365 sea salt and pepper. Uh, We love their sushi rice. You get the picture. Go check it out. Taste the Mediterranean now at Whole Foods Market.
1: Hey, Lauren. Hey, Dan. Welcome, welcome. Hey.
0: Yeah, hi. So, Dan, we're going to interview you today. It is so much easier to be interviewed than it is to interview.
1: (laughs) I Hmm. guess I'm about to find that out too. (laughs)
2: <laughs> i have so many follow-up questions there, but we'll wait
0: <laughs> i plan to make this as hard as possible for both of you, so you will you will see just
2: one word answers the whole time
1: so when you said beforehand you want, like your guiding principle for the next hours that we should enjoy this you meant you're going to torture us and enjoy it
0: yes i uh, uh, yes i meant i will enjoy watching you suffer which is the highest form of pleasure it says that in the dharma actually
1: <laughs> must not have read that sutta yet let's let's introduce lauren she has not I've uh, been on the mic before. Um, so Lauren Smith, producer extraordinaire, do you want to say hey?
2: Hey, I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, I've been on the other side of this many, many, many times. So this is my debut. And you know, you guys have done this many times before. So thanks for letting me in to the to the bromance here. I appreciate yeah. it. Thanks
0: yeah. Thanks for being here. I, I love how your hey was so playful. It was like a 2am text That's what
2: I'm here to bring. That's the energy I'm here to bring today.
0: (laughs) Yeah, there were like seven whys in that hay.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's very me. That's very me.
1: I I own that. (laughs) Uh, All right, let's just set a bit of a roadmap here. So this is the kickoff episode in a series that we've been working on for a really long time. And we're really excited about, Dan, it's the 10th anniversary of your book, your first book, which like this podcast is called 10% Happier. And so we thought it would be fun for Lauren and I to interview you. Uh, We'll ask some questions about the book, some questions about the 10 years since, uh, have some fun with it. And at the end, we'll give a little preview of uh, what's coming up in the next few weeks for listeners to look forward to. Dan, does that roadmap sound okay to you?
0: Yeah, it sounds perfect.
2: So some of our listeners don't actually know your origin story, Dan, but... You are good at talking. So who were you before you wrote this memoir? What are the broad strokes of your story?
0: Always happy to talk about myself. I will say this has been one of the slightly embarrassing aspects of doing this 10th anniversary rodeo is that, well, first of all, how old I feel, (laughs) because it feels like yesterday that the book came out. And second, I think I operated under the assumption that People who listen to the show read the book. The two of you have helped me realize this. I don't actually th- think that is entirely or even largely true. There may, may be many, many people who listen to this show have no fucking idea that I wrote this book or, or who I am or any of that stuff, which is great. It's totally fine. It's just that somehow the book was such a landmark event in my life, like a defining event in my life, that I narcissistically walk around thinking that everybody or at least certainly people who listen to the show would have a passing familiarity with it. And I realize that that's probably not true and it's slightly embarrassing.
2: Well, tell us, tell the people who do not know about your book, what led you to write the book. Okay.
0: Yes, that was Lauren's way of saying, can you answer the question I fucking asked you, please? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, okay, so I was uh, for a million years, a uh, news anchor at-, at ABC News. I got to ABC when I was 28 very young. <laughs> there's a picture. There's a picture of me that I use in some of my public talks uh, that was taken of me by the security folks in like a basement at ABC News on my first day. And a friend of mine once joked that if you take a wide shot of that picture, it looks like I might be holding a balloon because <laughs> I was so young looking and so scared and terrified and wearing this terrible, like double-breasted gray pinstripe suit because I was trying to be a big boy at ABC News after seven years in local news in, in Maine and Boston. I got this big break to come to ABC when I was 28. And it was terrifying. It was absolutely terrifying. I had I'd grown up watching people like Peter Jennings and Barbara Walters and Diane Sawyer. And all of a sudden, you know, they were ostensibly at least my colleagues. And my way of coping with the insecurity that I felt was to become a workaholic. Um, I think I probably already was a workaholic, but at this point, it just really went into high gear. And I had this like running inner monologue of, you know, how good was my last story? What's my next story going to be? Who's getting the story I wanted? What's my relationship with Peter Jennings right now? Blah, blah, blah. And I believed that any success that I was experiencing was directly correlated to the intensity of my anxiety. I had this little motto that was bequeathed to me by my dad, who was at the time an academic physician at Harvard, very successful dude. And he had this little saying, which is the price of security is insecurity, which is a great thing to tell your children. Uh, People are often shocked when I tell them that my dad is Jewish. It's very cultural trait to venerate worrying in this way. And, I subsequently learned uh, that my dad actually made this expression up to make me feel better about the worrying I was already doing. He wasn't actually trying to get me to worry more, but I kind of misinterpreted it and, and used it to glorify this anxiety that I was experiencing. And shortly after I got to ABC, there was this huge event in the news, which was 9-11. So I arrived at ABC in 2000 at age 28, and then 9-11 happened the next year. And I really, motivated by a lot of my ambition and curiosity and some idealism too, just volunteered to go overseas to cover whatever was going to happen next. And then I ended up spending many years in Afghanistan, Pakistan, Israel, the West Bank, and Gaza. I was there in 2002 during the Second Intifada. So, I, you know, the events in the news these days definitely catch my attention in a pretty prominent way. And Um, Then I was in Iraq many, many times, often for months at a time. And when I came home after a six-month stint in Iraq in the summer of 2003, so I was was in Baghdad pretty much consecutively from the pre-war, the invasion, and then post-war sort of early flowerings of the insurgency. And that was just my first of, I think, six or seven trips. And I came home in that summer, and I got depressed. I didn't actually know I was depressed. I knew I was not feeling well. And so I did something incredibly stupid, which is I started to self-medicate with recreational drugs, including cocaine. And that is what occasioned a panic attack on live television. I feel like I'm doing a lot of talking, so why don't I stop the story there and see if there are any other questions?
1: That just sounds like a really hard few years, all that time in the war zones, all that time striving in one of the most competitive environments on earth. Like You said you didn't know you were depressed. Did you know that you were struggling Mentally,
0: you know it's so funny you say that. It sounds like a hard couple of years because I remember those as some of my favorite years of being alive, mm-hmm. and I experienced it at least consciously as incredibly exciting. Mm-hmm. And I remember—I don't. I think I don't think I've ever written about this, but I remember a moment where I was in Ramallah, which is a major city in the West Bank, Palestinian territory, during. A uh, period of time when the Israelis invaded in two thousand two, and after spending a week in this incredibly hairy situation, and where I saw horrifying things, which I didn't enjoy. I'm not here to say that I, you know, got off on the on the horror or the violence, but it was very exciting and had this illicit feel of being in this place you're not supposed to be, which I've always enjoyed. I've always been a bit of a rule breaker. It had this illicit feel, and you get on TV so it it was this very complex cocktail and i remember getting out of ramallah and going to my hotel room in jerusalem and taking a shower and having the thought i have no problems that especially compared to the people i was just spending you know i was deeply immersed with these folks who had a lot of problems and I I remember feeling just incredibly grateful that I got to do that job. So, yeah, it's, it's just a long way of saying it didn't compute to me that period of time, at least consciously did not compute as traumatic.
2: Hmm. It's really interesting, Dan, because when just hearing you say that, it makes me just think about our body's intelligence and how it'll speak to us when we need it, even if we don't think we need it. You know, bringing us back to you had a panic attack on air. It seems like even though intellectually you were like, this is so exciting. This is an amazing time in my life. I have no problems. There was something confounding in you that was just like, I can't do this or this is too much, or it was a stopgap for you and something inside of you spoke. And I'm just curious if that resonates or what you think that moment was when the panic attack happened on air?
0: Well, it a million percent resonates. um, I think that's exactly what was happening and it's an astute observation. You know, I still retain some of the allergy to new age sentiments. So certainly at that age, you know, we're talking about 20 years ago when all this happened. At that age, I was not in tune with the wisdom of my body or anything like that. I wasn't. Joseph Goldstein, the great meditation teacher, likes to talk about this line from, I think it's a James Joyce novel where he describes a character as living a short distance from his body. And I think that was probably true for me. You're absolutely right. I think it showed up in a couple of ways. First, I came home and got depressed and didn't know it. I didn't feel depressed in my head. My body was sending me another signal, and I had all of the, I had a battery of tests. I went to all these different doctors. My parents were doctors, and I was forcing them into these involuntary medical symposia on the phone and trying to figure out why I didn't feel good. I mean, I had my apartment tested for a gas leak, all of this stuff. And it finally, I realized I was just depressed. But by that time, I'd already started to self medicate with cocaine. Mostly, that was. I mean, I did a lot of other drugs, but that was, I think, the one that really was the most problematic. And, and then the panic attack was another way of my body. And specifically, I think in this case, my brain telling me, we cannot trust you at the wheel of this uh, vehicle anymore. And so, you know, maybe it's worth my describing the panic attack.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think so.
0: Actually, I had two. Um, but the, the one that's on YouTube was in uh, 2004. I think it's the first clip that shows up if you Google panic attack on television. It has like a ton of views. Um, that Yeah, it's my most successful video, me losing my fucking mind. <laughs> <sighs> what an achievement. So, yeah, this was about a year or so after I'd gotten home from Iraq, and I had actually, in that interim period, taken other trips to Iraq. And I'd been given this opportunity to anchor the news updates on Good Morning America. So this job doesn't exist anymore, but there used to be a person... Her name was Robin Roberts. She's now the main host of the show. And her job at the time was to come on at the top of each hour and read some headlines. So the main hosts of the show were Diane Sawyer and Charlie Gibson. And Robin, when she was out, I started filling in for her, which was a huge opportunity for me. And it was really going well. I had been doing it for a while and even getting to fill in for Charlie in the on in the big chair. And so but this morning I was filling in for Robin and I started to read the story off of the teleprompter so there's a teleprompter with these words that float by you and I was reading the the six or seven stories that were on the docket that day and a few seconds into it I just started to lose it and I had had stage fright before so I knew exactly what this was I was pre-wired with stage fright and I'd had incidents that approached panic but not this strong and I was trying to get the words out and I noticed that my heart was speeding up and my mouth is getting dry and my palms were sweating and I was having trouble breathing. And in response to that, my mind started racing like you are screwed, dude. You got to get yourself out of this situation. You, you, And all these people are watching and, you know, your career is on the line here. And that just made my physical symptoms worse. And then my mind started racing even more. And you can hear on the tape, I sort of degenerate into incoherence and um, get my voices kind of breathy. I do kind of hold myself together reasonably well, which speaks to the fact that I'm probably a sociopath, but I couldn't keep going. And so in the middle of the shtick, I tossed it back to the main hosts of the show. Actually, you can hear me tossing it to the wrong hosts of the show. I think I said Robin and Charlie or something like that, but it was actually Charlie Gibson and Diane Sawyer. And you can see their faces in the video. They look... Like, oh, what's going on here? This isn't supposed to be happening. And they then tossed it over to the weatherman, Tony Perkins. And then Charlie bolted out of his chair and ran over to me to see what was wrong. And all of the people in the control room were getting in my ear and saying, what's, what happened? And I lied to everybody and said that I was fine. I didn't know what had happened, but I knew it was a panic attack. My mom called me backstage. She knew it was a panic attack. And then I started to try to get under the hood and figure out what went wrong.
1: Did the symptoms subside as soon as you tossed it back, or did it take a few minutes?
0: Well, there's the shame and the deceleration period of the heart, but yeah, I wasn't in full panic anymore as soon as I wasn't being watched. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is something I only learned recently, like here on this show, actually, Matt Gutman, one of our guests, who's also a TV, an ABC News guy, wrote a whole book about panic, and He explained to me here when he was on the show that part of panic is this social component. Our deepest fear as homo sapiens is rejection, because in the evolutionary times, rejection equaled death if you weren't part of the pack anymore. And so this idea that this was embarrassing, people were going to think I was insane, that shows up now even when I get panic on an airplane or something like that. A big component of the racing thoughts is these people are gonna think I'm crazy when I try to like get out of this plane. And so I I think that was a huge part of what was coursing through my mind at the time.
1: So you knew you'd had a panic attack. I imagine you also knew that that couldn't keep happening if you wanted to have the career that you had. So what did you do?
0: I tell it in more detail in the book, which is that I went to a, a shrink after the first panic attack in 2004, but that shrink did not figure out what the real cause was. So I kept partying and then I had another panic attack, a much more mild one in 2005. And that's when I went to see Dr. Brotman, who is a pretty big character in in the book, who asked me the question, point blank, do you do drugs? And I said, yes. And I often joke that he gave me this look this shrinky look that communicated the sentiment of, okay, asshole, mystery solved. And I think he actually said mystery solved, uh, but he was looking at me like an asshole, um, not him being an asshole, me being an asshole. And in this case, that diagnosis was correct. Yeah. So in that off in the office with him in 2005, I agreed that day to quit doing drugs, to come see him once or twice a week. I think I ended up seeing him for like 10 years. And actually, you know, when I first started to write 10% Happier, I was not planning. First of all it wasn't called 10% Happier. I think I had a I think I was calling it like The Skeptic's Bible or something like that and and the idea was not to tell my own story. I was really interested in getting people turned on to meditation because I had started to meditate and I wanted other people to get interested in it, but I wasn't going to make it a memoir. And then at some point I had this idea of like, oh, maybe I'll tell the story about the panic attack. And so I included it in some early drafts. And a a lot of my first readers came back and said, give us more of this because you're rhapsodizing about the theory of meditation is not so interesting. But you being an idiot is extremely interesting. So I ended up rebuilding the whole book around what was happening in my inner life with the goal, not of, you know, I didn't have some yearning to write a memoir. I mean, I was in my late 30s when I started writing, so I didn't have an interesting enough life to have a memoir in me. But it just turned out to be the most effective way to make my pitch, which is, because I think at my core, I'm not a memoirist. I'm, a, I'm an evangelical. And my pitch was, or my good news, was that meditation is based in all of this science. It can be good for you. You should do it or you should consider it. And the memoir was, I came to believe then and still do now, that that was the best delivery mechanism.
2: There's also a layer, I think, Dan, that our most vulnerable moments can be so life-changing. And that just has a very broad appeal for people in general, even beyond how good meditation can be for you. But to have someone talk about something that's really embarrassing and explain how it led to just a complete life change is really exciting, I think. And we talk about this as a team and we talk about this on the show, but vulnerability is really powerful, (laughs) even though that can seem a little cringy, but you displayed that and people want to hear that stuff.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. And I just, there are two thoughts that are coming to mind as you're talking. For sure, it is possible to do vulnerability inappropriately, to like bleed all over the place and overshare. And so I'm always worried about that. And yes, and I was very worried about that with this book. Mm-hmm. And that's my second point, which is that you have to remember the historical context in which I was writing this book in the early, in the late aughts and early 2010. So it was a five-year project the culture was very different. We did not talk about mental health issues that openly at that time. And we certainly didn't talk about meditation. It was not, it had a moment in the 60s, but it had gone back to the fringes. And most certainly, news anchors weren't talking about having panic attacks, being depressed, doing a bunch of blow. That was like not a thing. And I was terrified. My family was terrified. My mom was trying to get me not to publish this book. My wife was incredibly supportive, but really worried. At this time, I was, a, I was the main, one of the main hosts of the weekend edition of Good Morning America. And I had the thought that it's possible that general managers of the affiliates in certain conservative cities would say, we don't want this guy on our airwaves anymore.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So I was really scared to yeah. publish the book and and i'm not generally that brave especially not the type of person who is going to willy-nilly take risks with his career i think there were two things that stiffened my spine one is i just I had this incredible confidence that what that the important part of the book was not the embarrassing stuff about me but it was actually that inner technology that had several millennia of rigorous testing in the minds of people on many, many continents. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about meditation, of course. And so it struck me as being worth the risk. And then also my bosses, including Diane Sawyer, and also a guy named Ben Sherwood, who was the president of ABC News when the book came out. They were incredibly supportive. And, and you know, I, they read early drafts of the book, gave me notes, told me, go ahead, it's worth it. We've got your back. And when the book came out... You know, I think Diane Sawyer did two stories on the evening news the week the book came out, and mm-hmm. Good Morning America had me on. Ben Sherwood, the boss, basically sent a note to every anchor of every show and said, you will do this story on your air. And that's what made it a hit.
3: Hmm.
1: You said something a few minutes ago about not being a memoirist necessarily at heart, but being an evangelical. And it strikes me that you also would not have published the book if you weren't just so, so sure that it really, really could help people. When did you realize in your own life how potent this stuff was? When did that evangelical part of like who you are latch itself onto meditation? Because at the moment of the panic attack, it wasn't even on your radar.
0: <laughs> no. So let me, let me say two things. First, I think the best version of me, I think, is around this evangelical thing. The the best version of me is like, let me harness these decades of training I got in network news and in local news to be a storyteller and to be a a presenter of ideas and an explainer of ideas. Let me harness that to get out what is essentially a public health message. Okay, that's the best part of me. But the worst part of me, which you guys see behind the scenes occasionally, is... Driven by fear often, which can turn into kind of overcommitting or greed, acquisitiveness, you know, like wanting to do too many things. And then I get short-tempered and and then I'm scary. And so I'm not saying, I think the evangelical thing is real and it's not the whole story. So I just want to be open about that. But yeah, I do. I think in moments where I can get my anxiety under control, either internally through meditation and other modalities or externally by like having a boss like Ben Sherwood or Diane Sawyer sit me down and say, you're good. Then when I'm relaxed, I think the best part of me can come out, which is uh, helpfulness. You know, I I say this all the time. You've heard me say it a million times. You probably have a drinking game for um, when I say this. But the Tibetan word for enlightenment roughly translates into a clearing away and a bringing forth. And that's at least one of the things that happens in meditation is you – you're starting to clear away the more noxious tendencies in your mind. Mm -hmm. And then what is innate in all of us, which is this, you know, we are wired as a species, so you don't have to take it personally. Like when I talk about the best in me, I'm not not patting myself on the back. I think this is a capacity we all have to be useful. Mm -hmm. And then the luckiest of us figure out some match between our innate desire to be helpful and useful and to matter and what our skills are. That's the sort of good fortune I've had. Anyway, maybe I should answer the question you actually asked me, which is why meditation? Hmm. Um, They're nodding their heads. Okay, so... I had no interest in meditation, <laughs> none. <Yeah>. I was <laughs> none, no pre-existing interest in meditation. I was my parents, who I've referenced a couple times, were hippies, and they used to drag me to you know health food stores and to go, to go camping. And I remember my dad wearing a do rag, and they were very annoying. And they forced me to do yoga classes when I was a kid, and you know we, you know, whatever. So I had some scar tissue around that, and as a result, and and that kind of entered into a noxious partnership with uh, one of my less attractive tendencies, which is dismissiveness. I am at baseline dismissive, uh, which is something I've worked on a lot with varying degrees of success. And so if you take my conditioning, uh, you know, a childhood and this pattern of being dismissive, I thought meditation was... I mean, to the extent that I'd ever considered it before, just complete bullshit. And for people who smelled like feet and were really into aromatherapy and Cat Stevens and John Tesh and crystals and whatever. And so after I had the panic attack and started doing therapy, I wasn't like diving into the meditation of it all. That actually happened over the course of a couple of years without telling too much of the story will actually in the course of the the next couple of weeks you'll be meeting some of the key players in that story but so, the TLDR of it is the first thing is I read a book by a guy named Eckhart Tolle and Tolle uh, is a best-selling self-help guru and um, I was reading the book not because I was interested in him for my own purposes but because I thought he might be a good story for Nightline uh, which was one of the shows I worked on and in the book he made this argument that we all have a voice in our heads not referring to He was not referring to schizophrenia or hearing voices. He was talking about the inner narrator that chases you out of bed and is yammering at you all day long and has you wanting stuff and not wanting stuff and judging people and comparing yourself to other people and judging yourself and thinking about the past or the future instead of focusing on what's happening right now. And Tolley's argument was that this inner cacophony, which if we broadcast aloud, you would be locked up, this inner cacophony owns you If you have no visibility into what's happening and I found that absolutely compelling and I realized that this thesis about the human condition explained the panic attack the most embarrassing moment of my life it was because I had this inner dialogue fueled by greed and fear and confusion that I went and some good stuff too so I went off overseas and started covering war zones. Yeah, and in there were some good motivations with, you know, curiosity and idealism and service, and in there were also some ambition and desire, and I did all this without really taking a proper inventory of what my motivations were, and then I came home, got depressed, didn't know I was depressed, started self-medicating, and had a panic attack, so I thought this was such an interesting thesis, and I went and interviewed Eckhart and he turned out to be unsatisfying. That's kind of a story in and of itself that's in the book. And if I can cut to the chase here, it was through subsequent research post meeting Eckhart Tolle that I found Buddhism through Dr. Mark Epstein, who who's going to be part of the series uh, in the coming days. You'll hear from Epstein Um, and he becomes a major character in the book. He's a psychiatrist based in New York City. My wife gave me one of his books. And I I started to realize that this idea of this monkey mind that we all have was not an Eckhart Tolle trademarked insight. It, it, It really dates all the way back to the Buddha. And Epstein has written these beautiful books about the overlap between Buddhism or the Dharma and modern psychology. And I started reading those books and then I called him up and begged him to be my friend. And <laughs> uh, and there's like a Tuesdays with Maury type uh, vibe with me and Mark throughout the book. And he's explaining the Dharma to me as I'm trying to put it into uh, action in a busy, modern, skeptical life. So to answer your question about meditation, which I keep not doing... Meditation itself is a key part of how one manages the ego or the voice in the head, uh, the inner chaos and cacophony. And it's, I thought it was, it must be some esoteric practice that involved, you know, joining a group or believing in special things. But it really is very simple and has been secularized in the form of mindfulness-based stress reduction, which was invented by John Kabat-Zinn, who was recently on the show at the beginning of the year, who is an MIT uh, molecular biologist who was a practicing Zen Buddhist and had this idea that, wait, maybe I can do a secular version of this. And so I started doing it, and really is quite simple. You just sit in a comfortable position, close your eyes, try to focus on your breath. Usually that's what we start with. doesn't have to be the breath, but often it's the breath. And you're just trying to feel the raw data of the physical sensations of the breath, entering and exiting the nose or the belly rising and falling. And then as soon as you try to do this, you will inevitably encounter a sort of mental mutiny where you get carried all over the place by your thoughts and urges and emotions. And the whole game is just to notice when you've become distracted and begin again and again and again. And in this way, a couple of things happen. One, you change the part of the brain associated with attention regulation. And two, you develop a kind of self-awareness that we call mindfulness that allows you to see your ego, your inner narrator or whatever with some non-judgmental and maybe even humorous remove so that you're not owned by every neurotic obsession that flits through your mind. And, And there's a ton of data to suggest that this can have beneficial impacts on your brain, the rest of your body and your behavior, specifically around anxiety and depression. And so all of that, both the experience and the psychological research is what got me to attach to this practice. So that was like a 10-minute answer to your very simple question.
1: (laughs) As you would say, this is a podcast and long answers are totally fine. You talk about meditation, its various benefits, different ways to practice it. In the book, and one of the things you talk about is that it gives you this sort of superpower where maybe you've been reacting your whole life and all of a sudden you can respond instead of reacting. Can you talk a little bit about what that means?
0: Yeah, I would say the thing in the book that I spent five years writing that most people latch on to is this idea of responding, not reacting. We spend so much time like utterly ensorcelled by, utterly enthralled to this chaotic inner dialogue. We act out our thoughts like they're tiny dictators, as the great meditation teacher Joseph Goldstein says. What meditation helps you do is to drop out of the noise to start to view your thoughts with some distance so that they don't own you. And that doesn't mean that you don't engage effectively in the world. Quite the opposite. You learn to respond wisely to stuff instead of reacting blindly. Most of us are on, like, just totally controlled by the malevolent puppeteer of our thoughts, when in fact, we have this inner capacity to view the contents of our consciousness with some mindfulness, with some self awareness, and without being totally attached to them. And to me, that's kind of the big headline of the book. And then what you see me do is fuck it up repeatedly. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I've never personally seen that, but yeah. Could God, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um
0: Yeah. Of course. I not.
1: wanna hand things back to Lauren in a sec, but just one more question. I heard you say just a second ago, you said we have this inner capacity. Um Is that true for everybody? I know people come up to you all the time and say, meditation sounds great, but it's not something I can do. You know, my mind too busy. Do we all have that inner capacity?
0: I love when people say that to me. Those are are my people. (laughs) I stole that. That turn of phrase from Sharon Salzberg because she says the same thing. Sharon's a a great meditation teacher. Yeah, I I think that's very common. People have a sense that their mind is crazy, that they're like eminently distractible or maybe they even tried meditation and very quickly saw that the mind is busy. I sometimes joke that it's like trying to hold a live fish in your hands that it's just, just going all over the place. And they see that and wrongly conclude that that means that they have some sort of bespoke lunacy. I call this the fallacy of uniqueness, that somehow they and only they cannot meditate. When in fact, evolution most likely wired us to have this racing mind because it kept us safe on the savannah and other places where we were evolving. And so the point is not to clear your mind, which I think is the most... Damaging misconception about meditation. Uh, As you've heard me say a million times, clearing your mind is impossible unless you're enlightened or you've died. The point is not to clear your mind. The point is to focus your mind for a few nanoseconds at a time on something neutral, like the feeling of your breath coming in and going out. And then every time you get distracted, you start again and again and again. And that getting distracted, that waking up from getting distracted is not proof that you're failing, it's proof that you're doing it right. Because the whole game is just to notice how crazy the mind is, to notice what your life is actually about. You might think your life is about service or loyalty or whatever, and that's true in a certain way in a certain way but if you pay attention to your mind mostly what your life about is about is like what's for lunch and did i miss the latest bravo uh, show about real housewives and where do gerbils run wild and you know blah 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 or you're planning a homicide or whatever it is that is what's happening in your mind on a moment-to-moment basis and what this process does is help you wake up to that so that you can make better decisions Coming up, we're going to talk about some of the aspects of my own personality that I've learned about along the way uh, that needed to change. And uh, DJ and Lauren will weigh in on whether uh, I've been successful from their point of view. And we're going to talk about why our faults are not our fault, but they are our responsibility.
4: Dell Tech Fest starts now. you'll have access to leading-edge technology and free shipping on everything. Again, that's dell.com slash deals.
0: I had a very pleasant experience shopping on quince.com. Very easy-to-use website, and they've got a terrific selection. I bought myself a cashmere sweater and a sweatshirt. That sweatshirt in particular is an extremely heavy rotation. If you watch the YouTube version of this podcast, you will see it. Or if you see me on social media occasionally, I'm wearing my Quince sweatshirt. And I have to say, uh, the prices are hard to beat for a luxury brand. What's more, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes, indulge in affordable luxury go to quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns that's q u i n c e.com slash happier to get free shipping and 365 day returns quince.com slash happier don't forget to celebrate the 10th anniversary of the 10 Percent happier book we are offering subscriptions to the 10% Happier app at a 40% discount until the end of the month. Get this deal before it ends by going to 10 percent.com dot com slash 40. That's 10%, one word, all spelled out, dot com slash four zero for 40% off your subscription.
2: How successful do you think you are, Dan, at operationalizing this in your like daily interactions?
0: I mean, I have a lot of good news on the score. Although maybe I'll press DJ into answering that question. I am... Reasonably good, but there's a reason why I called the book 10% happier. Like I, there is no, I don't see perfection as being on offer. Maybe there is such a thing as enlightenment, full enlightenment, but I have no evidence for that. I certainly haven't experienced it. So what I think is genuinely on offer is marginal and consistent improvement. As long as you understand that you're going to have bad days. So it's not a steady upward trajectory of improvement it's more like a a sort of an up and down zigzaggy line and so absolutely if i haven't slept enough or if i'm anxious particularly around money stuff that's a big trigger for me i can do some very dumb things or I can be short or i can push people too hard um and this kind of um you know impacts people like you who work with me. And so this is a big thing that I talk to my shrink and talk to my executive coach, Jerry Colonna, and talk to my wife about, talk to my brother. People talk to Joseph Goldstein, the great meditation teacher, who's also featured in this series and in the book in a big way. Like I I try to work on this, but I'm not perfect at all. (laughs) And so the good news is I do think I and anybody can get better. And so this is just another example of like, yeah, I use my story, but I'm not that interested in my story. Ultimately, actually, I get pretty tired of telling this story over and over again. But I love talking about the universal aspects of it. And it is, I believe, a universal that we all have the capacity to grow and change. In the book, there's there's a whole set of instructions at the end. And it basically just teaches you how to meditate, and I actually went and revised and changed it and uh, for the new edition. But I kept something from the first book, which is that I end it with a uh, I used to be a huge this is going to show my age, but I used to be a huge buyer of records and CDs. And I used to go to Newbury Comics, which I think is still there on Newbury Street in Boston. Uh, It was my favorite record store, and I would love to see which albums were coming out soon, because there was no internet in the nineties, or at least in the early nineties. So you'd have to go to the store to find out, like what which band was gonna, you know, was Guided by Voices or Pavement. Are they gonna be putting out a new record soon? And um, above the list of new releases, there was this great little pithy little expression: "All dates can change, so can you." And I love that uh, because that, that is true. Now, I think there are probably some people who have um, mental health disorders that makes this harder. Um, and I would say if you have mental health issues, first of all, you're not alone. Many of us, sadly, an increasing number of us have them. And you just might want to work with your mental health professional, if you have one, to make sure that this practice is safe for you. But I, I do believe that, generally speaking, the capacity to change is a universal. DJ, you have uh, fewer compunctions about pissing me off, so wh- I mean, you, I, you, I, you, I know you've seen me on many a bad hair day, so it's not like you're working with some like perfected guru here.
1: Yeah, that's true. And you know, I think one of the complicating factors is like you move through most spaces in your life, and certainly through this space with us, with just a huge amount of power. Right. And so yes. me having a bad day means something different than you having a bad day. Right. I don't know. I think my experience of you is like your practice is real. You take it seriously and it bestows on you a level of self-awareness that allows you to do a couple of things that I've seen you do. One is like, check your bad impulse in the moment, which you sometimes do. Another is like, name the bad impulse almost immediately after it surfaces. And another is like, name it a little later than that, but still name it. Right. And it just takes a lot of the charge out of whatever the behavior is or the impulse is that you have that ability to either interrupt yourself before you do the thing or name it really quickly. Right. So sometimes that means you just acknowledging, like, I'm pretty tired right now and I'm a little frustrated and like, that might come out sideways and it's not about you. And you just kind of set the table that way as a way to like give everybody a sense of where you're at, right? And other times you'll say like, you'd be a few minutes into a conversation and be like, hey, I think I, I came in hot at the top and like, my bad, you know? And so I think like, I don't know, that's kind of all you can ask for really in a world where, like you said, perfection's not on offer. And I also like, I walk through space with, less power than you but still certain amounts of power in certain respects and I don't know I just really empathize with you like I am reactive sometimes too you know (laughs) I like I check my bad impulse a minute too late sometimes too yeah I can say after like three plus years behind the curtain that like the things you say on the podcast feel genuine and there's not like some other sinister you lurking that like doesn't meditate and doesn't care about anybody
0: <laughs> I mean that's my nightmare that my first of all thank you for that and I'm sorry to put you on the spot and my point in that was not to get you to push you to praise me in any way but actually quite the opposite which is to show i want to give people permission to continue to be schmucks right like that just because you're engaging in self development spiritual growth whatever it does not mean you should expect yourself to be perfect that's just another form of you know, delusion and so really that was that was my goal. Um and so I appreciate you playing along. Um and you know the power of it is is a really important aspect that I'm glad you pointed to that um that I honestly did not take into account for a long time mm-hmm. and didn't want to look at because I'm uncomfortable having power. And so now I see it more as like a responsibility. Well in my best moments, I see it more <laughs> as a responsibility to other people. And But, you know, forgetting is a huge problem. We talk about that a lot on the show that DJ and Lauren have a drinking game that they would probably be chugging around this thing that I'm about to say, which is that one of the original translations of the word sati, which we now translate as mindfulness, is recollecting or remembering because forgetting all the inspiring shit you might hear on the show or in great books or whatever. We're we're wired for that, for, for forgetting and denial and the culture militates against all of the the wisdom that you might pick up in certain places like the show or great books or whatever. And so I can forget and I try to remember, but there are times in my next book I'm writing about an incident in which that involves a staffer who's no longer with us. Uh, She passed away where I was mad at her for like three months Mm. and she was right. And I only, only recently really started to take into my bones that she was right and you know i have a lot of regret around that that kind of ugliness in is definitely still in me and again i'm not i'm saying this trying to be helpful just to say that this is a slow process in any orthodox buddhist tradition they'd say this is a multi-lifetime affair you know the the way we talk about the buddha is that you know there are all these stories the jataka tales about his prior lives and so this guy Again, I'm not saying you have to believe in any of this stuff, but the the way the Buddha is talked about is as a guy who was messing it up for lifetimes until he got enlightened.
1: Yeah. This thing you just said about like how long it took you to admit that someone else was right. Just it calls to mind for me one of, I think, your most effective tricks in this arena, which is. You just make it a habit to constantly name the fact that, like, there's probably information you don't have, and there might be something you're not seeing clearly, and you might be wrong about the thing you're about to say before you say the thing. And I could be reading you wrong here, but I think sometimes that comes from genuinely felt in the moment humility. And sometimes it comes from just like knowing that that's a good thing to do, (laughs) even if you're pretty sure that you're right. (laughs) But it it really does make a difference. And it's just like a great hack, even in the times when like you might not mean it at all. Like saying it is a reminder, even just to you, I think.
0: I, I'm glad glad you point that out because it ha- I've been given the feedback before I met either of you. I got rather pointed feedback that when I said I could be wrong, it was a clear signal that I did not believe I was wrong, and I was going to say something (laughs) to prove that. And so I would say one of the fruits of my practice that has showed up in the years after the book came out, in the 10 years, is that I have decreasing confidence in my own correctness. And there's a long history of people praising intellectual humility. You know, Yates said... The best among us lack all conviction, you know. Um, This is a quality that we praise, but it's not one in our current culture that we actually reward that often. We we live in the middle of a time when, like, certainty is really rewarded and, like, the loudest, all-caps, obnoxious version of that. And I, as somebody who came out of the media where that is definitely rewarded, did not bring to this game the best conditioning for intellectual humility. But the practice of, like... Consistently being confronted with the madness of your own mind will, if you let it over time, give you a kind of, I think, attractive and helpful lack of dogmatism. I mean, the Buddha said, I am not a dogmatist. I'm an analyst. He also said, those who cling to their views and opinions travel the world, annoying people. And so (laughs) I do try to take that on board. And at my worst... I fall back into the like spouting of I could be wrong, but not actually believing that.
2: The one thing I do want to say that you're really good at, Dan, is creating a culture where even if it feels hard for all of us, we are encouraged to also speak our vulnerability or any kind of messy feeling. And I think that that is something that you've modeled and it feels connected to this. Like you're not perfect, Let's talk about it instead of letting this narrative just run the show in the background. Let's get it out there in the space, in the room, so that we're not just being led by these stories in our heads. And I think that that is something that I have experienced and is very interesting in a workspace and I don't think necessarily very common.
0: I appreciate that very much. And I feel a little sheepish for having forced you guys into this situation, like... (laughs) <laughs> Remember those Trump cabinet meetings when he would force all the cabinet <laughs> folks to like say positive stuff about him? I, I don't want this to be a hostage video.
2: <laughs> we really like you, Dan. We like you so much. Exactly. So
0: I'm not much. a monster, <laughs> guys. I don't know. You can't see them. I'm not sure if you're listening to this. You can see them, but they have fire emojis shooting out of their eyes. Um, yeah. So, but but I came I came to this. Through screwing it up, another note I got was that I was actually rude to junior staffers, which was humiliating. This was came in, in a 360 review I did many years ago, and it really pointed out that I was rude and dismissive and impatient and not creating, I, I believe the term of art is psychological safety with people. And so it is not my default mode to do that. I've had to train myself, and I still screw it. Lauren doesn't want to say it, but I still screw it up you know, semi regularly. So these are just lessons that I've had to learn. And a lot of it is by, you know, being on doing this show. Again, I, I always thought of the show for, for certainly for the first few years as, you know, uh, an interesting little postscript on the book, but the book was the thing. And now I think this podcast reaches more people in a six week period if I'm doing the math correctly than the than than have ever read the book. And and so this show has become like one of the main events of my life. And it's basically me getting free therapy and talking to people who are interesting. These lessons about vulnerability and psychological safety and communication skills. You know, I am trying to do what I hope the audience is trying to do, which is knit them into my life.
1: When I hear you say that thing about how, for example, creating psychological safety is not your default mode. I just want to like point to one thing in there not to make you feel better, but because it might be of service to other people, which is like this notion that your default mode is somehow harmful, but also that it's like yours is like also something Mm. that like I've learned to question through the practice and through listening to the guests on our show. Right. So like one version of the story is like Dan's selfish. Dan like wields power irresponsibly. Like Dan fails to create psychological safety because Dan's default is bad, right? And I know you have spoken openly and often about how you you have this sneaking suspicion that you are somehow irredeemably selfish or bad, right? And all of that conditioning, the selfishness, the rudeness to junior staffers, like everything you're talking about, there are causes and conditions for that, right? There's things that you learned in your time at ABC News and before that. There's things that you learned from your parents, Your schooling, your teachers, the culture, the media, there are things that are baked into our DNA as people, like our defaults to fear and anger, or as like the Buddha would say, greed, hatred, and delusion. And so it's like, your default mode isn't really yours in a way, right? It's like, you have to take responsibility for it, but you don't have to tell yourself the story that, in the same way that like someone is not doesn't have a uniquely racing mind. Like your default mode is not uniquely reflective of something bad about you.
0: I mean, gold star. Yes, that's it. I mean, that is one of the main thrusts of the Dharma. There's a great Burmese master who was the teacher to many of the folks who've been on the show, like Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg and Jack Kornfield. His name was, he's no longer with us, Sayada Upandita. Pandita. And he used to say, the mind is not yours, but it is your responsibility. And that can sound esoteric, but it's really as simple as this. As DJ was saying, everything that's happening right now, every event (laughs) rests on the lip uh, of a wave, on an unfathomable ocean of causes and conditions dating back to the Big Bang and maybe before. And when you view things with that perspective it's hard to take your shit very personally. And so I do, I spend my life now, like a, not all of my life, but a big percentage of my life telling my own embarrassing stories, not because I think, I mean, I try to make them interesting, but not because that's the point, but because I'm trying to get people to see <laughs> that you don't have to take your own inner Michigas too personally. And that actually the, Real liberation is to start to see it as something that's impersonal. Doesn't mean you don't have to take responsibility for it, but you don't have to add on the whole story about how this is you irrevocably, et cetera, et cetera. Coming up, how the book's success uh, has changed my life and how it feels now to find myself uh, in the role of quasi-self-help guru.
4: When it comes to hiring, don't go searching for the one. Just meet your match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. Just go to Indeed.com slash happier right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash happier. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
0: Experiences are what people love the most about travel. This is perhaps a bit idiosyncratic, but one of the experiences that my son, Alexander, loves is mini golf. We recently went to a mini golf uh, themed restaurant in uh, in Denver where we were traveling. And uh, when we go to Montauk, which is our favorite beach town here on the East Coast, we play mini golf at Putt-Putt all the time. Alexander, his buddies, me. And in one way or another, these experiences are really what become the the most memorable and important part about taking trips. Which brings me to Viator, which is a website and app where you can book travel experiences, everything from simple tours to extreme adventures, with over 300,000 bookable experiences in 190 countries. There's something for everyone. I have used Viator myself. I find it to be incredibly helpful. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your First booking in the app, one app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator.
2: Dan, your life obviously has changed significantly since this book came out. And one of the things that I find most interesting is that you've been turned into this kind of quasi-self-help guru. And I'm curious, how do you feel when you hear that, first of all? (laughs) And are people coming to you for advice all the time? How do you see yourself how are are you comfortable as someone who's like a voice in the wellness field? And what do you even think about that word wellness?
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's a great question. I initially had a lot of imposter feelings about it. And I have so much respect for meditation teachers who, uh, as you know, I'm married to a doctor. My parents are doctors and um, have a lot of respect for doctors and they go through so much training. I, I lived with my wife when she went through residency. And then I think three or four years of fellowship after residency, um, before she became a full attending physician. And meditation teachers go through, I think, more training, you know, years of silent retreat. And I have not done that. So I really, uh, I, I really worried about this initially. And I, I didn't even know whether it was okay for me to um, teach meditation when I was giving Talks. Just to be clear, when the book came out, I thought it would come out, make a little blip, maybe even not much of a blip, and then go away. And then it ended up being way more successful than I suspected. And it led to this podcast and a meditation app. And I still do a lot of speeches all over the place. And I was worried about, you know, was it responsible for me to teach basic meditation and then answer people's questions about it? And I, I had a big talk with Joseph Goldstein about this, and he said, yeah, first of all, it's totally fine for you to teach basic meditation. And then when you answer people's questions, as long as you keep it in your experience, it's fine. You know, don't pretend you know more than you know, just use I language to be, uh, I don't think he said this, but this, this is um one of the communication skills that I've learned that if you keep it in like your own personal experience, you're much safer because you can be an authority in your own personal experience. You know, 10 years that have passed and, and, I increasingly feel comfortable with. I would, you know, quasi guru is right. You know that I mean, I have not done the training to be a full meditation teacher, but I have done some training, and I do one or two silent meditation retreats a year, often ten days. I've written a couple of books on the subject. I host this show two to three times a week, so I, I do feel like I can give some advice, with the caveat that I am not a doctor. I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not a psychologist even. And within that context, yeah, I can channel what I've learned, filter it through my own personal experience and share that. And if I take that approach, I do feel comfortable. And I like, you know, I like being the guy that my friends call if they have a problem. Yeah, I like that a lot, actually. And I do spend a certain amount of time at the beginning of those conversations explaining all the stuff I don't know. And then once I've done that, I feel better about saying what I I see.
1: You said something a few months ago, I think it was just when the team was at dinner and it just popped out to me because I wasn't expecting it, which was, you talked about how the book, or at least at the time that you were writing it, you felt like it had a kind of punk rock feel to it. And I'm curious like what you meant by that and if that still feels like an animating spirit for you in the work you're doing now, especially given everything you've just said about how you've sort of established yourself as the sort of go-to person?
0: I love that question. It's something I've been thinking about a lot. And I would actually like to get some feedback from the two of you on it. I'll I'll say a few words and then be interested to hear what you think. For sure. Well, first of all, I've always loved punk rock. A lot of these records behind me in, in my little studio here are like, I guess you would technically call them sort of Alternative or underground rock from the 80s and 90s, bands like the Minutemen and the Replacements and Sonic Youth and Who's Du. And then in the 90s, like Guided by Voices and Pavemen. So I've always loved that. And I've always I've always been very attracted to interesting worlds outside of the mainstream. And that was a huge theme in my journalism. You know, I, I definitely I covered big mainstream events. And but I really loved, especially in the later part of my career, was diving into the world of like the underground drug trade in Rio or the child slave rings in Haiti and busting American pedophiles prowling in Cambodia and these little, these these strange and often sometimes not so great uh, subcultures. It's always been very interesting to me. And so that finding new ways to see the world and talk about the world has always been important to me. And when I started getting interested in meditation before the book came out, I was really intrigued by the science and by the practice and very annoyed by the books I was reading because there was this syrupy, saccharine tone. And so I tried to write a book that used the F word a lot and told embarrassing stories about cocaine and, you know, had a sort of eyebrow raising title because I thought that was the way to break through. Because again, remember the cultural context, there was a lot of skepticism generally in the culture at that time about meditation to the extent that anybody even thought about it. So I thought, well, if I'm an evangelist, I need the right language. You know, the Buddha was very good at this. You know, he he was on the scene during a, an agrarian time and he would use farm or very down home, like analogies and metaphors in his teaching. If he was talking to people who worship fire, he would talk about the Dharma through the lens of fire. I do think that's an important thing to talk to people in ways that they're likely to listen. I'm where I'd be interested to hear your points of view is that I think over time I've been off at times because I think the culture has moved and there is less skepticism about meditation and sometimes my I've got these habits and this conditioning from from that first book that may not be relevant or serving me so well now. Not, and Lauren, you're nodding your head.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm just thinking how like my favorite versions of you, Dan, are when you're like earnest and not in that mode. But also I think it just speaks to what different people are drawn to. There, I think that there's something about knowing that you had so much skepticism and then watching that soften and seeing you open is exciting to see for me. And maybe that's just my own personal preference. But I, I have a feeling that other people might feel similarly.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you. I think there's something to what you're saying. On the one hand, I got so much feedback, especially early on, that the skepticism was so important for people like, oh, well, if this guy's going down this road, maybe I can go with him. And I, I think especially for people like my age and older, um, you know, I'm a Gen X, like I, I think still that's very important. And yet, I think for younger people, especially because younger people, are, and by most humans, are younger than me. But I, I'm referring to you know anybody in their 30s or below. That, as you guys know, there's so much suffering going on right now. People are not bringing skepticism to tools that could help them turn down their anxiety or depression. They really want them, and so I don't need to gild the lily or dress it up with you know, too much profanity or skepticism because that, that actually is, that it's discordant to many audiences. So I'm increasingly trying to figure out how to how to straddle all of this and, and be effective and be real because I am a guy who swears a lot and I do like making jokes. And it's about thinking about the appropriate time and place for all of that.
1: That's so interesting. There's probably never gonna be a right answer there. That question will probably be alive for as long as you are, or at least as long as you're doing this work. Yeah, we hear from people all the time, like, thank God you got rid of the bleeping. It's nice to hear the authentic Dan. And we also hear from people all the time that's like, stop cursing. It's not mindful. I had to turn it off. Like it's ruining my equanimity, you know? And those are just two things that are both true at the same time. I guess when I think about your skepticism, I think like, yeah, we might be in a time when you don't need to work as hard to signal that you're not going to be using syrupy language and we're not going to be super precious about this. Like that just might not be as important as it was 10 years ago. But I think that the spirit of like, how do we really reach people and connect them to practices that can really help still needs skepticism because We now live in a world where mental health conversations and meditation conversations are everywhere and they're for sale everywhere. And there are a lot of claims being made and there are a lot of products being sold and there's a lot of conventional wisdom being peddled. And so we still need to be skeptical, but maybe just in different ways. Like, are we talking about trauma in ways that are good for people or bad for people? Are we talking about trigger warnings in ways that are good for people or bad for people? Are we talking about Is talking about anxiety all the time actually helpful or is it making people more anxious, right? So like we still need the skepticism and I think there is an echo chamber that we can sometimes fall into where we get pitched a guest and they've got this great pedigree and their book has been blurbed by 10 people who have been on the show before and it just feels like an obvious home run. Are we losing a little bit of the skepticism that you started with? Like, do we need to be pushing harder on what are really the best ways to be talking about this? What are really the most useful practices? So yeah, I think it's gotta stay. It just gotta like bob and weave and change and be impermanent like everything else.
0: Yeah, I think, I think what I'm hearing you both say is something like there's healthy skepticism and maybe a corrosive skepticism. A healthy re- skepticism that you're pointing to is like rigor and careful thought. And an unhealthy skepticism might look like cynicism or it might look like glibness and lazy profanity and easy jokes. And so I don't think we're heading into a world where I don't say fuck anymore or I don't make jokes. But I, I was talking with Joseph about this just the other day. He was saying that some people don't like how my sign-off on Instagram is inner peace motherfuckers. And But you know, if you look at the comments, some of the people in his world don't like that I say that. But if you look at the comments on those videos, they're just like, people are like, make me a t-shirt that says that. And, And we were talking about when is it appropriate to do this? When is it skillful and useful? And when is it not? And I don't have clear answers. I'm just trying to figure that out.
2: I think your earnestness lands well, though, with that as the backdrop.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's like what you're pointing to is some sort of wise combination
2: like everything in life, right?
0: (laughs) Yes. This is another, you know, TPH staff drinking game I'm sure that they could play. But I'm always talking about this Esther Perel expression that I love. Esther Perel is the great couples counselor who's been on the show a million times. I love her so much. And she talks about how some some things are not problems to be fixed, but dynamics to be managed. Mm -hmm. And I think we've just identified one.
2: Mm, I love that.
1: So, yeah, maybe before we let folks go, Dan, can you just give us a preview of what's coming up in this really exciting series that we've been working on for so long uh, around the 10th anniversary?
0: We are doing a big and ambitious series here on the show. Very grateful to DJ and Lauren for doing a ton of work. One of the guiding principles that we talked about a lot is that we didn't want this to feel just like rote and repetitive promotion for the book. And so, yeah, we are celebrating the fact that there's a new edition of the book coming out, a revised uh, edition of the book, and that's fun for us. But these episodes are meant to stand on their own as value add for you, the listener. Um, And so there'll be a thin veneer of, hey, this is part of this series, but mostly it's about just doing something useful and interesting for you. So the the theme is that we're just going back and talking to the key players from the book. And it's not so much ab- uh, about talking to them about their experience being in the book, that would be pretty boring. We're just talking about the things they're interested in now. So we're just producing a bunch of new episodes that we would produce at any time, but we're just kind of lumping them together in this series. So we're talking to people like Joseph Goldstein, and when I asked him what he wanted to talk about, he said that he's increasingly interested in talking about esoteric aspects of buddhist cosmology like karma and rebirth and even superpowers and so we actually had a fascinating discussion about this and and it's not the type of things that modern dharma teachers especially especially in the west really go into and and he he goes into it we talked to Deepak Chopra who plays a, a bit of a the role of a foil in the book. he uh, make fun of him a little bit. And so I was interested to see what what do I make of him now ten years later, and is he mad at me? And so you'll hear the results. Uh, we talked to Spring Washam, who's a great meditation teacher who I also kind of make fun of a little bit in the book, although she turns into a hero. And subsequently, she and I have become quite good friends. And uh, so we're talking to her about, should you go on a meditation retreat? It's something that people talk about a lot and increasingly people are interested in it. So what do you need to know before you go? Should you even go? We're, we're going to talk to her about that. I talked to Dr. Mark Epstein, who I mentioned earlier, and he's got fascinating things to say about the Buddhist concept of emptiness or not self, which we were talking about earlier, like the, this very hard to grok idea that you shouldn't take the contents of your mind personally and how that can seem scary or weird, but actually it should be deeply comforting. And then finally, we talked to my brother, Matt, who plays the role of skeptic in the book, who's making fun of me for getting into all this stuff, and is now, to my great delight, a very dedicated Dharma practitioner. I have joked that there's times when he comes to me to talk about meditation, and I have this Buddhist phrase that comes through my mind, which is, I fucking told you. Uh, and uh, it's a, <laughs> that's a really fun conversation, <laughs> very satisfying for me. And finally, just one, now that I'm just shamelessly promoting everything here, just well, I do want to say that we are doing a live show in New York City, um, where we're going to have a band and uh, some very special guests, many of whom uh, you just heard me talk about, uh, so you can come celebrate this in person. Uh, this is also just kind of in keeping with us running a bunch of experiments lately, uh, so this kind of idea of doing a, a live party I'm interested to see how it goes. So come join us. All the information's in the show notes.
1: Awesome. Thanks for uh, letting us grill you. This has been a fun turning at the tables today.
0: We should do it more often. You guys are really good at this.
1: Well,
2: we learn from the best, don't
0: we? I think I just
1: threw up in my mouth a little bit.
2: (laughs) I'm here to bring the earnest energy too. Come on.
0: (laughs) Uh, you guys are the best. This has been an amazing series. It's also been a great conversation. So thank you.
1: Sweet.
2: Thank you, Dan. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having
4: us.
0: Thanks again to DJ and Lauren. We've got many more great episodes coming up. Deepak Chopra, Joseph Goldstein, Mark Epstein, my little brother. It's going to be great. 10% Happier is produced by Gabrielle Zuckerman, Justine Davy, Lauren Smith, and Tara Anderson. DJ Kashmir is our senior producer. Marissa Schneiderman is our senior editor. Kevin O'Connell is our director of audio and post-production, and Kimmy Regler is our executive producer. Alicia Mackey leads our marketing, and Tony Magyar is our director of podcasts. And finally, Nick Thorburn of the great band Islands wrote our theme. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey.
1: If you travel for work, you know to pack two suits, business and swim. You know with your Delta Sky Miles business Amex card, buying that plane ticket for a business trip can get you closer to medallion status. You know that a meeting in Montana means visiting almost every national park. Yellowstone, check Because you're the chief excursion officer. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum Business American Express card member. If you travel, you know